If you have your Bibles, turn in them to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, you can look in the bulletin. <clears throat> the bulletin has the passage that we're going to be looking at on the inside cover. There's also a place there to take notes. We're going to be looking today at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. So, friends, listen. This is God's word. But understand this that in the last days there will be there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. This is the good news of Jesus this morning. (laughs) Man. Let me remind you of where we are so that you'll know how to understand these verses and what Paul's trying to communicate in them. Um, We are learning this passage from chapter 2, verse 14, all the way through chapter 3, verse 9, is teaching us how we're supposed to respond to opposition and conflict in our lives. Okay, And just as a reminder, this is what we've seen already. So when we respond to opposition, we need to first, we need to discern the real issue and focus on that. Um, Second, we need to repent of what we've done, like of our part to play in the opposition or the conflict, and we need to confess that and ask for forgiveness. Third, we need to pursue community. That doing this, responding to opposition like this, is not only confusing and challenging, but it's difficult sometimes, and we can't do it alone. And then fourth, last week we saw that we need to maintain healthy boundaries. Right? And we saw that what that meant was that we need to give people Jesus' grace and truth, and then we need to let God be the one who changes their hearts. Now, sometimes we can do everything that God says to resolve a conflict. Sometimes we respond exactly the way that God says and the way God wants us to. Sometimes we can do all of these things. We can even appropriately leave the rest to God and say, okay, God, I've done what you've asked me to do. Not perfectly, but I've done what you've asked me to do. And now I give it to you. So now, God, your responsibility is to grant this person repentance. And so sometimes we do all that, but then nothing happens. Right? Sometimes we do all that, and the conflict doesn't get resolved. The other person doesn't understand us. We end up not understanding the other person. Right? And we get that this is part of life, but why does this happen? Like, why is it that we can't just follow God's ways and all the time it will end up working out well? I think Paul answers that question in these verses. Okay? There are some people, and I'm one of these people, not everybody, but some people, um, who believe that if the conflict doesn't get resolved, um, if there is still something wrong, then I must have done something wrong. Do you ever feel that way? Like there must have been something else that I could have done or I should have done or I didn't do or I could have done better. There, or there must be something that I can do to fix it. Right? Anybody like me? I think this is especially true with conversations about Jesus. So over the years that I've been walking with Jesus, about 23, 24 years, 
um, I've had thousands of conversations with people about Jesus. Um, and when they don't accept what I'm saying, when they don't become Christians, I tend to believe that it's my fault. I tend to think, oh, I must not have said it right, or I should have said something else. These verses that we're going to look at today, 2 Timothy 3, verses 1-5, through 5, these verses say, hold on, not so fast. Hey, hold on, not so fast. It's possible that you could have done better, but maybe not. These verses teach us that sometimes it's not you. Okay? Sometimes there's nothing that you can do. Sometimes, um, what we're going to see today, uh, it's the first blank in your outline, okay, if you want to take notes. And what we're going to see from this passage is that opposition may come from under the surface. Okay, that's what this passage teaches, that sometimes opposition may come from under the surface. Okay, and so sometimes it's not you. Sometimes there is something under the surface in them. Okay, that's what this passage is going to teach us today. So this began to be a sermon that <clears throat> was all about how to understand what goes on inside of other people. And it will be that, and we'll get to that. But in my preparation, I tripped over three words in the first verse that caused me to say, wait, 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 we've got to stop and talk about this. Because it's really important, um, and it's something that, uh, th that we need to do. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a brief pause. This is related to the sermon, but it's a little bit uh, on the side of the sermon. But i got to give it to you because it's in the text. Okay? Paul is warning Timothy here in verse 1. He says, but understand this. Right? Paul is telling Timothy, look, there's something really important, Timothy, that I need to explain to you. Okay? And then he says, in the last days... See that phrase? In the last days. If you've been around the church for any length of time, you may have heard some discussion about the last days. Right? You may have heard a lot of discussion <laughs> about the last days. Now, the, last, the, the word last in the original Greek uh, is the word eschatos. Okay? It's that word there over on the left. It's the word eschatos. Um, the English spelling of the word is right there, E-S-C-H-A-T-O-S. And the reason this is important is because this is, where, this is where the word eschatology comes from. Okay, We get the word eschatology from the word last that's in this passage and you know, many others. Okay? Now, what is eschatology? Well, eschatology is the Bible's teaching on the end times. Okay? Eschatology is the study or the, the Bible's teaching on the end times. So what's supposed to happen before Jesus' second coming? Okay? Jesus is going to return bodily. Um, but before that happens or when that happens, what is supposed to happen? The Bible talks a lot about this. And I point this out and I stop and I pause here in this sermon because I want you to be aware of these things. I want you to know... Um, uh, I think to say that there are lots of differing views on the Bible's teaching on the last days would be a gross understatement, okay? There are divisions of divisions of divisions of positions that people take and interpretations that people have on the Bible's teaching about what's going to happen in the last days. And so, but what I want to do is I want to just stick with what Paul says here, okay? Because any understanding of the whole Bible's teaching on the last days needs to be consistent with what Paul teaches here. 
Okay? And so we're just going to focus on what Paul says in these verses, and we'll leave eschatology studies and sermon series for the future. Okay? So we have to remember as we look at these verses that Paul is writing to Timothy in the early 60s of the first century AD. Okay? Jesus died around 33. This is now in the early 60s AD. Okay? Now, remember, Paul is discipling Timothy in this letter in the early 60s AD. Okay? Paul is helping Timothy to reconnect with his calling as a pastor. And Timothy is a pastor in the city of Ephesus in the early 60s of the first century AD. And look at what Paul's conclusion is. If you look at verse 5, the last three words are sort of Paul's, this is what I want you to do with this truth. Okay? So Paul's describing something, he's giving this long description, and Paul's conclusion, his summary statement for Timothy, what Timothy, the so what question for Timothy is, avoid such people. Okay, you see that? This is a present tense command. Okay? This is Paul telling Timothy, in the early 60s AD, avoid such people. Okay, this means that these such people, they were present with Timothy in the early 60s of the first century AD. God, why do I keep repeating that phrase? I wonder if that means anything. So, whatever else you say, whatever else you say about the last days, whatever else you say about eschatology, you must believe the Bible when it says that the last days were going on in the early 60s of the first century A.D. Are you with me? Paul says, understand this, Timothy, in the last days there will come times of difficulty People are going to act like this. Avoid these people. Okay? So as far as Paul is concerned in this passage, Timothy is living in the last days. Okay? Now, this isn't the only place where the Bible makes it abundantly clear that during the writing of the New Testament, the people were living in the last days. I'm just going to give you some other verses that you can look up on your own. Acts 2, 16 and 17. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. James 5, 1 to 3. And then 1 John 2, 18. That one's even better. Anybody know what that says? It says, Beloved, it is the last hour. So not just the last days, but in John, 1 John 2, 18, it says this is the last hour. Um, so that's significant. But especially, especially... Um, you can see this in Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. That's a whole chapter of what Paul is describing was going on and about to go on during Timothy's life in the early 60s of the first century A.D. Now, next week's passage will further underscore that Paul believed that he and Timothy were living in the last days. We'll look at that again next week. Um, and I believe there's really two ways that you can look at how to define the last days, okay? There's two ways that you can do this, and here they are. First, um, the last days are, number one, the days between the ascension of Jesus and his second coming. Okay, so that's about 1,981 years and counting, right? So from 2014, the present, from AD 33, when Jesus ascended into heaven, 
So it's possible, and a lot of scholars believe this, biblical scholars, people who love the Bible, they love Jesus, they say that the last days are actually 1,981 years long and, and, and counting. So that, that Paul was in the last days, and we're in the last days, and we've been in the last days this entire time. Okay? So there are lots of people that believe that. Um, I kind of struggle with that, because I think there's a better interpretation of what the last days are. I think, secondly, that the last days are the last days of the Old Covenant. Okay? The last days of the Old Covenant. And so this means Jesus' generation until 70 A.D., when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Okay? We don't have a real appreciation for the significance of 70 A.D. We don't understand what it was like for the temple that stood during the days of Solomon was destroyed but then rebuilt and was in place for hundreds of years that was like, I mean, you think about the way that the Muslim faith treats the Dome of the Rock now, right? The strong desire, which would be like a radical understatement of Israel to want to rebuild the temple on that same place, right? Like for the temple to be destroyed in 70 AD was the end of an age, it was the end of the Old Covenant. The, 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 the temple was the sign of God's presence with his people. And for the temple to be destroyed in 70 AD, and Jesus makes it really clear that it was going to happen. Jesus predicts in the sermon, in the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew 24, is one place, Luke 21 and Luke 18, in Mark 13, um, Jesus predicts that this generation won't pass until you see all these things happen. And sure enough, the Roman army came and the Roman army destroyed the temple. And what's kind of crazy for the people who were alive at that time was that when the Roman army came, surrounded Jerusalem, destroyed the city and the temple, the New Testament writers believed that the Roman army was Jesus coming on the clouds and bringing judgment. Okay? And this is clear when you read the breadth of the New Testament's teaching on this stuff. And so, I think that the last days are actually the last days of the Old Covenant. And so Paul is saying, hey Timothy, we're in the early 60s, we know that it's coming. They didn't know it was going to be 70 AD, but when the Roman armies began to come, they had a few years of advance notice. And when the Roman army came, the Christians literally bolted. All the Christians ran because that's exactly what Jesus said to do. He said, when you see them coming, when you see the army surround, run. Don't go back to your home. Don't grab your cloak. Run. Just go. Get out of the city. When the Roman armies came, the Christians all left and they lived. And those who stayed were annihilated. And so that is... I mean, depending on when 2 Timothy was actually written, but I mean, that was like six, seven years coming. And so when Paul says in the last days, he's talking about the days leading up to the end of the old covenant. When something definitive, when a break was going to happen um, with the old covenant. And so here's the point. Okay. Let me, let me explain. Like, so, I mean, some of this is interesting. Some of this is helpful to understand what the Bible's teaching on this is. And so from that perspective, it's helpful just to be aware that this is the Bible's teaching. And if you heard it and you're like, what did he just say? Sometimes you got to hear these things five or six times before it really sinks in and you really begin to grasp. So it's okay if you didn't get that. But you can look up these verses um, that I put up there earlier. But here's the point. 
And you'll see this clearly if you read Revelation 12. And you'll see how this also applies to opposition in the church. Okay. Jesus, when he died and rose again and ascended into heaven, he defeated the devil's power and dominion through the cross and resurrection. Okay? Jesus defeated the devil's power and took charge of the world. And when the devil saw that he was defeated, the devil unleashed a war on the people who followed Jesus. Okay? This is what's described in Revelation 12. Now that war began in the first century and that war continues through the ages and it becomes more aggressive in waves when the church appears to be gaining ground in the world. Okay? So sometimes you see the war more intense than others. Okay? And it's because the devil is leading people to wage war on the people of God. And so, sometimes... Sometimes, under the surface of the opposition that we face in life, okay? Sometimes, under the surface of the conflicts that can plague your family, that can plague your workplace, that can plague your community, sometimes there is a cosmic war going on, okay? Sometimes the devil is assaulting us through other people. He is attacking the church trying to beat it down and to weaken it. Okay? Now, here is the most startling thing about understanding this cosmic war. The most startling thing is that the way the devil wages war is through love. Okay? The way the devil wages war is through love. And that's our first point. Our first point is that it's all explained by love. It's all explained by love. When you have a list that's this lengthy, there's like 15 descriptions and then there's some other things here uh, in these few verses. Sometimes with a lengthy list like this in the Bible, the author will give us some clues to how to interpret the list um, by the beginning and the end of the list. Right? Sometimes there's a, a similar beginning and ending which acts like the, the grammatical term is it's an inclusio. It's, like a, it's just sort of an enveloping, like sort of beginning and end. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Here's, let me tell you, and then here's what I told you. Okay? And so that's what happens here um, in this passage. Uh, it's the case for verses 2 through 4. You see, verse 2, the list begins with love. Right? It says, people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money. And then in verse 4, the list ends with love. It says that people will be lovers of pleasure. Right? You see that? Now Paul, as he ends the list, he highlights the problem of these inordinate loves. Okay? He shows that these are problems with verse 4 because he says they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And this reminds me of Matthew 6, 24. You remember this verse? This is where Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You know, the key of that word, the key to understanding this idea of love is actually serve. Right? It's serve. You know, this, this idea of love in 2 Timothy 3, it's actually a submission to it's a service of self, pleasure, money, or God. And so Paul is saying what Jesus is saying. 
He's saying that people, under the surface, people are tempted to love the wrong things. Okay? Under the surface, people are tempted to love the wrong things. Money is not evil, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Like that's what the Bible says. Um, pleasure is not bad. Right? Pleasure is actually one of God's gifts to creation. Right? God made, he filled this world with pleasurable things, with pleasurable experiences. Right? God built into our anatomy, into our physiology, endorphins and nerve endings. Like things that make us feel good. Things that can receive pleasure. And so the problem isn't when, uh, the problem is when our love for self, our love for money, and our love for pleasure causes us not to love God. You with me? It makes sense, right? Um, um, That's the issue. It's when our love for self, our love for money, and our love for pleasure causes us not to follow Jesus. Okay? So the idea here is it's when we make decisions in our lives that put self, money, and pleasure above what God wants. That's when it's a problem. That's when we're guilty of what he says in verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And so this, like this is the devil's constant attack. This is how the devil wages war. The devil wants us to love ourselves too much. The devil wants us to love money too much. The devil wants us to love pleasure so much that we will do anything to get it or to keep it. This is how the devil attacks us It's how the devil attacked them in the first century, and it's exactly how he attacks us today in San Diego. We are bombarded with messages and temptations to love yourself, to love your money, and to love pleasure. It's like an unholy trinity. Um, And the devil does this because it works. It works, doesn't it? I mean, Paul's describing these people, and I'm thinking, man... I'm in there. I mean, I have love for pleasure that is inordinate, that causes me to do things that don't follow Jesus. I have love for money at times, where I end up squeezing too hard and freaking out about things and and stressing over, over God's provision in my life, right? And frankly, I love myself way too much. So as we look at these things, this isn't just those people out there who are... But this is us, because the devil comes to us, just like he went to Jesus to tempt him with these same kinds of things. What I think is helpful, it's helpful for us to see that the core of all sin is the love of something else besides God. The core of all sin is that we love something else besides God. The reason we don't do the thing, I'm sorry, the reason we do the things that we shouldn't is because we love things that we shouldn't. It's all explained by love. And so, opposition and conflict often arise because under the surface, we are driven by these inordinate loves. Okay? And our second point pushes this farther. So not only is it all explained by love, but this love produces fruit. Love produces fruit. As I studied this list and 
was trying to think through ways to organize it or to understand it, um, I began to think about it and I realized that the inordinate loves that bookend this passage, they're actually at the root of all of this description. Um, each of the sins that's listed here in verses 2 through 4 are expressions of one or the other of these inordinate loves. Um, let me show you what I mean. Right, so we have love of self and we have love of money and pleasure. And I just put those things together because um, I didn't have enough room on the slide to make three columns. So, <laughs> no, um, it's because the love of the money and the pleasure, you'll see it, that it all fits. Um, I just want to walk through briefly this list. So on the love of self side, um, Paul says in verse 2, he says, people be lovers of self, lovers of money. Then he says they'll be proud. Right? Proud. These are braggarts. Right? These are people who are always thinking and talking about themselves. Right? That's an inordinate love of self. They'll be arrogant. Right? So they don't just talk about themselves too much, but they think that they are better and more important than other people. Right? Again, that's an inordinate love of self. They're ungrateful. So their attitude is, I deserve everything that I have. I don't need to be grateful for anything. Like, what are you, crazy? Like, I earned this stuff. They're unholy. This means that they have no care for God. And I think the idea here is that nothing is sacred if it gets in the way of me. They're unappeasable. This means that even when people try to reach them, Right? When people approach them and try to talk to them, they don't care. You can't appease them. You can't give them something and then they'll calm down. You can't you know, try to reason with them to a place where they'll like, recognize what they're doing and stop doing it. Right? They're unappeasable. Then they're treacherous. This means that they're betrayers, uh, which means they have no loyalty. Because again, life's about me, and so... I'll follow you when it's good for me, and if it's not good for me, I'm going to cut you, and then I'm going to go after it. I'll follow this part, but it's all about me. And then they're swollen with conceit. So they're puffed up with themselves, and they're blinded by their self-consumption. So this is what it means to be lovers of self. Right? And Paul says that in the last days, as the devil increases the intensity of his attack on the church, he is going to tempt people to love themselves inordinately. And so this can help us, right? This can help us to understand, wait a second, okay, there may be something else going on under the surface here in this opposition, in this conflict. And I should just ask myself that question. Because if I can identify that, it might help me, and we'll talk a little bit about how it will help, a little bit later, but this also helps me as not just to see what's in someone else's heart, but this also exposes stuff in my own heart, right? Doesn't it for you? I mean, come on. This isn't just those people out there, right? All of us struggle with these kinds of things, and seeing it this way makes me realize, whoa, when I do these things, when I'm proud, arrogant, ungrateful, unholy, unappeasable, treacherous, when I'm swollen with conceit, I'm giving in to the devil's attack on Jesus and his church. I don't want to do that. You know, like, I don't mind being proud or arrogant sometimes, but when I look at it as, oh, wait, hold on, I'm actually attacking Jesus and his church, that, like, wakes me up. Like, I don't want to go near that, right? That helps me to say, no, 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 arm's length, I'm not going near that. So, 
Then we have love of money and pleasure. So these are the other elements in this list. People are abusive, right? That's an attitude that says, like, others deserve to serve me. I can abuse other people because it's about me. It's about my pleasure. So, I mean, it's also self, but you can see that it's, it's about pleasure. Um, some people use their money to abuse others. They use the, the wealth that they have to manipulate and to get their own way because other people deserve to serve me. Um, they're disobedient to parents, right? Fundamental authority in all of life, right? I don't serve anyone. I have no authority because serving other people, man, that's not good for me. Like, that doesn't make me feel happy to serve other people. Come on, I'm not going to do that. Being heartless. This is unfeeling toward others. People who just don't care. They're slanderous. So this means they're hurtful with their words, and I think it also means they're litigious. Right? Think about the kind of lawsuits that go on in our country. Right? These are people who are slandering other people and using the law to go after them. Right? This doesn't mean that all lawsuits are evil or, or, or slanderous, but a lot of them can be. Without self-control. Well, yeah, come on. I mean, if I stop myself, if I limit myself, that doesn't feel good. Come on, I'm not going to do that, right? So my inordinate love for pleasure is what causes me to be, uh, to lack self-control. Then they're brutal. These are people who take pleasure in others' sufferings. I mean, think about the first century, right? You've got the gladiators, right? Which, I mean, I have this sort of love, but I hate myself for loving uh, mixed martial arts and the ultimate fighting. Like, you kind of want, like, I kind of want to watch, but then I feel like, what am I watching here? Like, they're just pounding on each other. Like, is there anything redemptive? Oh, they're working hard, and they're like good soldiers for crying. I'm trying, and I'm like torn, right? But it feels like there's a lot of stuff with, like, MMA today that's, brutal like it's brutal and so i'm not condemning anybody else i'm just saying in my own heart i have a to- I have, there's a tearing in my heart on on this but but people who take pleasure from other people's suffering like that's not good right if i'm going because or if i'm watching something or if i'm participating in something because i'm taking pleasure in someone else's suffering that's a problem that's an inordinate love of pleasure expressed in a very destructive way then the verse says, not, lover, uh, not loving good, right? So there's no interest. This is actually kind of a reference to the public good, right? I don't care about the community. I don't care about the city. I don't care about anything. I just want what's good for me, right? And then the last thing is they're reckless. And so this means thoughtless, right? They're thoughtless. They don't think about, they think about only themselves, right? Only what's good for them now um, and in the future, And so the reason I put this stuff up is because it's important for us to see this point that it's what we love that produces what we do. Okay? Love produces fruit. If you have good love, it produces good fruit. If you have bad love, it produces bad fruit. And the tragic summary that Paul gives here is, um, is verse 5. They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. And this is kind of the tragedy, you know, where people will, even having these things that go on in their hearts and their lives, they will show up to church. Um, I mean, I think about recently, 
uh, somebody told me about this, that the Pope made a trip to Italy and he actually excommunicated the mafia. He declared that they were excommunicated from the Catholic Church. And again, I haven't read the details, so don't push me for details, but my understanding is that the mafia has always been very religious, very Catholic, um, and they have shown up to church on Sunday um, after weeks of the kinds of illegal and immoral activities where they are driven by a love for pleasure, a love for money, and a love for self. Um, and so they have this form of godliness. Right? In the first century, um, everyone actually attended religious functions. In the first century, there was no dichotomy between what was religious and what was public. Public was religious. And so um, they would, in the Greco-Roman world, um, religion, uh, they, they, would, they, would, they would go to events, they would have, they would always have like sacrifices at all of the events to like appease the gods and to placate the gods and to, to want to honor the gods. And, and so people were always showing up to these events and they were putting on religion for a time. And what Paul is describing here, really, it's a tragedy. Um, it's a tragedy because he's saying these people, they have an appearance of godliness. There is a sense to where they are making effort, right? They're making an effort to, um, to express a faith or a belief that there is a higher power, that there's something out there. And yet they deny its power. They deny its power because their lives are consumed with love of evil. There is no power. There is no, and, and the power that he's talking about here, I think, is the power of the resurrection of Jesus. Right? That when Jesus rose from the dead, he powerfully overcame the, the sin and death and the devil. And so his power, Ephesians 1 says that his power is unleashed in the lives of people who believe in him. So when you believe in Jesus, Paul says in Ephesians 1, verses 19 and 20, he says that he prays that you would know the power of God that's in you. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, right? It's the power that took you when you were dead in your sins and you didn't care about stuff, when you loved yourself and you loved your money and you loved your pleasure. And it's like you were dead in those loves. You were dead as far as God was concerned and God made you alive together with Christ. And God has filled you now with a love for him. And when that love comes, right, when that love for God comes, there's power and there's transformation. Your life begins to change. And so Paul is saying these other people, they have the appearance of godliness, but there is nothing different in their lives. God makes no difference. And man, that is a tragedy. It's not only sad for the person who's living that life and there's really no reality of God in them. But it's awful for people, especially if they're calling themselves Christians and there's no difference in their lives. Right? Because then, not only is it tragic for you and your experience, but now you are telling the world that God doesn't really matter. That God can't really do anything. And so there's a tragedy there. It's depressing to think that people um, would try religion but that these inordinate loves would snuff out the life of God that's in them. And so, so for us, in conflict, this informs what we've seen already. 
right? If we go back to what we've seen in this, in this series, um, we need to discern what the real issue is. And now we realize there may be some issues that are under the surface. And knowing this may help us, right? I think this gives us even more room to repent, right? When you're in opposition with someone in a conflict, you can ask yourself, do I have an inordinate love of myself, of money, or of pleasure that is contributing to my part in this opposition? I want to repent of that. I want to confess that to God. I want to confess that to the other person, right? As part of giving people Jesus, right? In community, we need to be able to be open about these sorts of things. We need to encourage each other and remind each other, hey, you know what? Remember, this conflict that you're dealing with, there might be something under the surface, you know? Or we might ask each other, you know what, is there anything inordinate in you that's contributing to this? Like, we need community for that. Um, and then it'll help us with boundaries, right? We have to remember, okay, it's my job to give them Jesus' grace and truth. And I have to leave the rest to God, to let God change their hearts, right? Because only God, only God can set someone free from these inordinate loves. And so this helps us. I think that realizing and learning from these verses, it teaches us that's, that, it, that oftentimes there's an inordinate love that needs to be lovingly exposed and replaced. Okay? Our goal is to lovingly expose the inordinate love and to seek to replace it with our third point. This is a short one. Our third point is a love more powerful. A love more powerful. Because you got to realize, like, think about, okay, well, how does God feel about this inordinate love, right? What is God's response to this kind of behavior, to these inordinate loves and all the sin that it produces? Well, God comes, right? God shows up in response. He shows up, but, and what does he do? Does he come in judgment to destroy this evil love? <laughs> no. No, he comes to earth with a love that is even more powerful. Jesus comes to earth with a love that is greater, with a love that is stronger. And it replaces, it offers an alternative to the love of self, money, and pleasure. Look at this. The love of self. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This inordinate love of self is replaced by a conviction that what is that the gospel teaches us to love others and not ourselves. A love of money. Love of money. Well, the gospel says this in 2 Corinthians 8 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is the gospel. This is how the gospel turns upside down these inordinate loves and replaces them with a love that is stronger and more powerful. So instead of needing money, instead of needing stuff, Jesus teaches us that the love that lasts, the love that is truly strong, the love that transforms, is a love that gives. 
is a love that is generous, is a love that seeks to make others wealthy. And then a love of pleasure. There are lots of places to go for this. 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24. When Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, to God, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Friends, this is gospel love that replaces a love of pleasure. That when Jesus forsook pleasure and sought God, right? When he, his love that was so powerful endured the cross. It endured the suffering. It didn't retaliate. It didn't seek pleasure of vengeance. It didn't seek pleasure of retaliation. It didn't even seek pleasure for putting people in their place. Even justice in a sense. Because Jesus was driven by a desire to take the justice that would have fallen on you and me. He died for our sins. When you can get a hold, when you, I mean, this is love expressed in Christ. This is God's response to inordinate love. This is love that God has already showered on you if you're a Christian. Right? When we believe in Jesus, God gives us this kind of love. A love that serves, a love that makes you and gives, meets all of your needs, a love that is willing to endure suffering for you. And he gives you that love, not only so that you can receive it and know it, but so that you can share it with others. This is a love that compels. This is a love that compels. When you know that this is the love of Christ, it will compel you. It will speak to every area of your life. It will speak to every relationship. There is nothing that's safe from this love. Nothing is safe from this love. And what's amazing is this more powerful love will produce fruit. It'll produce fruit. You will show this love and share this love with others. This is how we give people Jesus in opposition. And when we do this, what we offer, we're offering them another way. We're offering them a different way so that they can leave the inordinate love that may lie below the surface um, and love Jesus in return. How can you do that this week? Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for this amazing love. We thank you that you did not succumb to the temptation that we so often succumb to. We confess that we love ourselves too much. We love our money too much. We love, um, we love, what else do we love, Jesus? Thank you. We love pleasure too much. And Jesus, we confess that and we, we, we just throw it off. We throw it off and we confess it as sin and we reach out to you now, Jesus, and we receive your unending, eternal love. And we thank you for it. Fill our hearts with your love so that we might share your love with others. And I pray too, Jesus, for those who are here and haven't yet put their faith in you, <laughs> Jesus, would you show them this love is for them if they would merely reach out and accept you. If they would commit their lives to you, Jesus. They could have this love. Would you give them repentance? 
so they would confess their sins and commit to following you. We pray this all in your name. Amen.